question for you. Have you ever, have you ever gotten lost? And I probably shouldn't ask that to the men in the room. Wives, has your husband ever gotten lost? Yes. Uh, this, is, this is probably the most famous one for me. Uh, we were at Glorietta, um, the, the Baptist Assembly in New Mexico, and we were heading uh, on a free afternoon to Taos, which is uh, Indian settlement, old Pueblos. And um, this was in the early days of GPS, and uh, I found a shortcut. I found a shortcut, and, and thankfully, God in His sovereign providence made it a four-wheel drive vehicle, because when the pavement ended, and I said, oh yeah, it's just a couple more miles this way, and there were trees and rocks and streams that we were crossing over, um, we were hopelessly and terribly lost, and anytime anything comes back up, it's just, remember New Mexico? Oh yes, I'll turn around, I'll ask for directions, I get it. Um, I had something very similar, you know, about this time of year, um, corn mazes pop up all over the place. You ever done a corn maze? Man, if you haven't, you need to get out a little bit. Um, they're fun. And I don't know if you've ever been to a really big one where the corn is, I mean, it, you can't, I'm not six feet tall. I can't see you over it. And I spent a lot more time in that corn maze than I ever really intended to. And I think that I'm pretty, I'm, I'm pretty good with my kind of natural kind of compass. I know which way is north, and I know which way is east, and I don't, get, I don't get discombobulated. I had no idea after about 15 minutes which way I had come and which way I was going. And the thing that is so frustrating about getting lost in the maze, listen, it's fun, but like guys are very task-oriented sometimes, and it's kind of like grocery shopping. I don't meander. I go to the aisle, I pick what I want, I go pay. <laughs> you get extra points, that you get a discount if you get out of there fast. And so I, I don't meander. And I, I wanted to come in and I wanted to conquer the corn maze. And after about 15 minutes, I went, this is not like a junior high corn maze. This is like, this is like PhD level corn maze. This is, this is serious. Someone maniacal has designed this. I am hopelessly and terribly lost. And the challenge was, if you could just get some elevation it completely changes your perspective. If you're in a little cherry picker, you get to climb up on top of a water tower and you get to see, all right, that's a dead end. So I want to turn left, I want to turn right, and I'm going to turn left again. I think I'm going back in the same direction. But that's actually the way to go. Sometimes when you experience life at ground level, you feel like you're running into dead ends every which way you turn. And the same can be true of life. Just a little bit of perspective, just a little bit of perspective can really make sense of your circumstances. If we get some altitude, it might change your attitude. You might know that you're not hopelessly lost. And wouldn't it be wonderful to really be able to see life from God's vantage point? It would help. You know, when we talk about... Um, You've heard the phrase, looking at life through rose-colored glasses. Um, everybody looks, everyone has a pair of glasses on today. Maybe not literally, maybe not physically, but everyone has a lens through which they look at reality. Um, the, the word for that is you have a worldview. You have a way of looking at the world in which you try to interpret what is happening and make sense of it. For a worldview 
to actually work. It has to be consistent. It has to be comprehensive. It has to be coherent. It has to actually make sense of things. And there are a lot of people who just say, you know, worldview analysis isn't, isn't helpful. And yet we find that the Bible has an answer for why really good things happen, period. It says that all good gifts come from where? The Father of lights. I mean, the rain falls on the righteous and the unrighteous. Every good thing that happens is a result of God's just common grace to us. You know, the Bible has an explanation for why bad things happen too. It's sin. It's rebellion. And this world is now under a curse. And so when we understand life from God's vantage point, it helps. We see that this morning as we look at Ecclesiastes chapter 8. In just a few couple of verses, uh, we learn from Solomon how to make sense of this world. What what is going on and how how do the wise survive in a world that really is wicked? That might not be the, the word that we would use all the time, but it's a wicked world. Ecclesiastes chapter 8, verse 1. When Solomon wants to talk about how the wise survive, he begins by extolling the value of wisdom. He's praising its virtues. Listen to what it says. Who is like the wise person? And who knows the interpretation of a matter? A man's wisdom brightens his face, and the sternness of his face is changed. He says very simply, who is like the wise person? Who knows things? Who knows the interpretation of a matter? He asks the question, who twice? And the anticipated answer is, no one. Who's like the wise man? No one. The wise man is exceptional. And in case you don't know that, let me just throw a couple examples of wise guys from the Bible at you. Joseph, Genesis chapter 41, verse 39. Uh, Joseph interprets these dreams, and it says, So Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has made all this known to you, which I think is fascinating. I mean, Pharaoh in his culture was a god. And Pharaoh's not saying, Since I have revealed this to you, Pharaoh had a problem. He had a dream he couldn't interpret. And by congratulating Joseph on his ability, he says, Since God has made all this known to you, there is no one as intelligent and as wise as you are. Here's a man in his culture reputed to be divine. Talking to Joseph who knows that he's nothing but a man that God has shown an answer to. And this other man who has deified himself bows down in honor to this wise person. Daniel chapter 2 Verses 25 through the first part of chapter, uh, verse 28. It says, Then Arioch quickly brought Daniel before the king and said to him, I have found a man among the Judean exiles who can let the king know the interpretation. The king said in reply to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, Are you able to tell me the dream I had and its interpretation? David, uh, I'm sorry, Daniel answered the king, and here's what he said, No wise man, no medium, No diviner priest, no astrologer, no one is able to make known to the king the mystery he has asked about. That doesn't sound like a good answer. Can you do this? No, nobody can. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has let King Nebuchadnezzar know what will happen in the last days. Friends, the Bible says 
that wisdom is valuable. It's valuable. Now, I don't know how we would monetize that. If you could walk out of here with all of the answers to life's questions, to know how to conduct yourself, to, to know how to pursue reconciliation and peace, to always speak words that are fitting and valuable to other people, that's an amazing thing. The Bible talks about the value of wisdom in the most exalted language possible. In Proverbs chapter 3, Solomon again uh, praises wisdom in the form of a song or a poem that he has composed for his son ten times throughout the book of Proverbs. He has these poems composed to my son. If I could leave one thing to you, son, pursue wisdom. Proverbs chapter 3, verses 13 through 26 says this, Happy or how blessed is a man who finds wisdom and who acquires understanding. For she, he personifies wisdom, is a gracious female. For she is more profitable than silver, and her revenue is better than gold. She is more precious than jewels, and nothing that you desire compares with her. Long life is in her right hand, and in her left are riches and honor. Her ways are pleasant, and all of her paths are peaceful. She is a tree of life. Hmm. What an interesting analogy. A tree of life to those who embrace her. Now, that's tree hugging that you can get away with. And those who hold on to her are happy. The Lord, He founded the earth by wisdom, and He established the heavens by understanding. By His knowledge, the watery depths were broke open, and the clouds dripped with dew. Maintain your competence and discretion, my son, Don't lose sight of them. They will be life for you, an adornment for your neck, and then you will go safely on your way. Your foot will not stumble. When you lie down, you will not be afraid. You lie down and your sleep will be pleasant. Don't fear sudden danger or the ruin of the wicked when it comes. For the Lord will be your confidence and will keep your foot from a snare. Listen, if there's anything you should get from those 13 verses, it's that wisdom is a blessing and it is a value beyond anything else that you can treasure. In business, sometimes uh, business people will talk about this concept called opportunity cost. There is, there is, um, there is an opportunity Um, There's maybe a service or a product or a good that nobody is providing. And right now, you have the opportunity as a business person to be the first person to address this. There's a cost to that. You have to be the leader and do something that nobody else is doing, but the benefit of that opportunity is enormous. In the same way, business owners sometimes talk about opportunity cost in a negative way. Um, if you have an opening in your business and you go, you know what? We are senior vice president of marketing. We need a senior vice president of marketing. He just retired. We need somebody to do this. Marketing is important. And so you rush about in a tizzy to vi- find the new vice president of marketing and you hire the wrong person. You know what the opportunity cost for you is there? You have filled the position. You are paying the salary. But when you hire the wrong person, it says that the opportunity cost could be two, three, four, five, six times the cost of his salary because now morale is messed up and you've gone backwards and now you've violated policies and there's a lawsuit. 
hiring the wrong person, there's an opportunity cost. And being the leader, there's an opportunity cost in doing the wrong thing. And the Bible says this, when it comes to opportunities, you don't have, a, have to be a business person to have an opportunity. You have opportunities every single day to glorify God, to live for His kingdom. And the Bible says if you will pursue a life of wisdom, guess what? You'll make the right decision. You'll make the right decision. You'll be the leader in doing the right thing. You'll avoid making a bad decision. You'll be wise. I love what it says here. It says wisdom actually changes your countenance. You know, you go from frowny face to happy face. It says that. And some of you know, um, some of you know, you have coworkers, um, friends, maybe even the person that you're married to, that in the morning, without their cup of coffee, don't mess with them. Don't, don't mess with them. And the analogy that the Bible is making here, or that I'm trying to make here, is just as a cup of coffee can brighten up your morning, it can, can turn that frown upside down, you clear the cobwebs. In the same way, the Bible says that wisdom does that for your entire character. So don't just wake your face up and smile in the morning. The Bible says if coffee does that to your body, wisdom does that to your character. You ever... You ever you ever walked around a mall or a supermarket and go, man, look at that guy. He just looks grumpy. That's because he doesn't have wisdom. People who know God and benefit from his wisdom, it should show on your face. So do this for just a second, okay? There's a difference between wisdom and joy. Or, I'm sorry, between happiness and joy. Happiness is circumstantial. Joy is deep and lasting. Can you all smile for like three seconds this morning? God loves you. He sent a son to die for you. And he's given you a book and a spirit to instruct you and to enable you to walk in that direction. Guys, whatever you are going through, that is good news. That's good news. Jesus himself used wisdom a time or two. You remember... Uh, People, people think, uh, I'll just tell you this, if Jesus was your pastor, some of you would not like him. Jesus rubbed religious people the wrong way. And so there were a group of religious people that tried to trap him, and they tried to trap him with politics. Is it right to pay taxes? Because if he said, no, it all belongs to God, they'd have him. But if he said, yeah, they'd have him too. He was on the horns of a dilemma. You remember what he said? And said, render unto Caesar that which is Caesar, and render unto God the things that are God's. And it said they didn't ask him any more questions after that. They were confounded by his wisdom. The Bible actually tells us this morning that we're supposed to ask for wisdom. So if you um, don't feel wise, the Bible says you have not because you ask not. Listen to this, James chapter 1. Verses 5 and 6. Now, if any of you lacks wisdom, friends, that's all of us, he should ask God, listen to this, who gives to all generously. He's not just going to give you um, one tiny Cheerio of wisdom this morning. He's not going to give you one Rice Krispie. <laughs> you know, you're hungry, 
you have an appetite for something, you know you need it, God, I'm hungry. Well, here's a single Rice Krispie for you. God bless you. Eat and be filled. Oh, that's not, it says he gives generously. Your bowl is going to overflow. He's going to give generously and without criticizing. Really? You've been a Christian for all these years and you're not wiser than you are? No, he's not going to criticize us. He's going to be generous. He's going to go, well, what'd you do with the wisdom I gave you last week? You lost, you lost the wisdom I gave you? Where did you put it? You're so irresponsible. He's going to give generously and without criticism, and it will be given to you. But let him ask in faith without doubting, for the doubter is like the surging sea driven and tossed by the wind. The Bible's implying that if you have wisdom, you have stability. You have gravitas. You are not tossed about by whatever waves are popular at the moment. So Solomon extols the value of wisdom. Secondly, Solomon displays the counterintuitive ways of the wise. Now, why are they counterintuitive? Because they don't make sense. Do you know that the Bible actually tells you to do things that will not be in your best interest? Like, die to yourself. Oh, that sounds great. Die to yourself. So Solomon displays the counterintuitive ways of the wise in verses 2 through 15. How do the wise survive our wicked world? And he begins with uh, three kind of admonitions. Uh, the first is found in verses 2 through 5, where he says that the wise survive by submitting to authority. Now, that, I, I know you're writing that word down, and it's not a four-letter word, submit. But it's a four-letter word, isn't it? The wise survived by su submitting to authority. Look at verses 2 through 5. Keep the king's command because of your oath made before God. Do not be in a hurry to leave his, leave his presence and don't persist in a bad cause since he will do whatever he wants. For the king's word is authoritative. And who can say to him, what are you doing? The one who keeps the command will not experience anything harmful. And a wise heart knows the right time and procedure. Solomon gives the example of a wicked and despotic king. And in the ancient Near East, kings uh, were deified. They could get away with whatever they wanted to. And so he says, there are, you must take care in the procedures by which you approach the king. You don't just come traipsing into the king's presence. There is a protocol simply to talk to the king, let alone to correct him. You don't go, uh, hey, king, I think your um, statistics about the 2015 Clemson football team were wrong. Um, Hunter Renfro was number whatever. Huh? You don't, you don't correct a king. There's a protocol and there's a procedure. And if you take the wrong turn, that king has the authority for you to be dead or slightly better than that, arrested or exiled. Take care in how you respond to a king. And it says here, rather, we should demonstrate obedience, loyalty, and prudence. doesn't matter if he's a bad king. You have a responsibility to submit to him, even if he's evil. It's interesting, the Bible was composed in the first century, even while Nero, a, 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 a ruler, a, a Caesar who was... Um, by many considered to be mad, 
I mean, like, insane. Uh, had, had, if he was alive today, he would have several um, issues diagnosed by a psychologist. And uh, yet there is no admonition in the scriptures for us to rebel, for us to take up arms to, to fight against him. And the truth is that opportunities for inciting revolution or rebellion or insurrection or even grumbling are exceedingly rare. If you're asked to be contrary to Christian conviction, then we can have a conversation about what our responsibility is when it comes to civil disobedience. And what Solomon is doing here is he's giving us a very high view of providence. Even when the human leaders over you are evil, you can still demonstrate prudence and loyalty to them because that's what God wants from you. That takes patience and trust in God to submit to another human ruler. It does. It's not easy. But the alternative is that insubordination to the authorities that God has placed over you is blatant mistrust in God and His providence. So be careful how you talk about the mayor. Be careful how you talk about your senator. Be careful how you talk about your president. Because insubordination is not just directed towards a human. God stands behind the authority. And insubordination is a mistrust of God. Think about David and Daniel. David had been anointed as king, but Saul was still on the throne. And, and, and apparently, to David's friends, God delivered Saul into his hands. David's hiding in a cave, back of the cave, and Saul goes in the cave to um, relieve himself. He is um, quite literally caught with his pants down not in a very defensive posture. And his friends say, David, surely the Lord, and they get all theological real quick, surely the Lord has given your enemy into your hands. And David says, I will not raise my hand against the Lord's anointed. David was not persuaded by his feelings. He was not persuaded by his circumstances. He was not even persuaded by his peers. He was not going to compromise what he knew was right. Daniel was a man of prayer. He was such a man of prayer that his reputation preceded him that all the other satraps that were uh, under the Persian Empire that despised him used his own prayer life to get him thrown into the lion's den. Yet Daniel was not going to say, well, you know what? Uh, not too popular for me to pray. Maybe I'll just kind of stop. He didn't compromise. He was who he needed to be, and yet he was not insubordinate to his rulers. He was very respectful. As a matter of fact, the king didn't sleep all night long while Daniel maybe got a good night's rest in the lion's den. <laughs> kind of interesting. Why do we submit? Well, the Bible says in verse 2 here that we've made some kind of oath to God. In verse 5, it says there's a reward. The one who obeys isn't punished. It's people who disobey that are punished. First Peter chapter 2, verse 13 and 14 says this, Submit to every human authority because of the Lord. Not because they're of the political party that you like, not because they're instituting policy that you like, because of the Lord, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors as those sent out by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. Friends, we should be thankful for our government. We should be thankful for our government, even if we are challenged by its flaws. You know, there's no perfect form of government, not till God reigns. We should be thankful for the government that we have, because even the most ungodly government can be used for good. 
The wise survive by submitting to authority. Number two, the wise survive by fearing God. The wise survive by fearing God. Uh, look what it says in verses 6 and 7. It says, The one who keeps the command, I'm sorry, uh, for, every activ- for every activity there is a right time and procedure, even though man's troubles, man's troubles are heavy on him, yet no one knows what will happen because who can tell him what will happen? Verses 6 and 7, he just very simply says, this is a broken world. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 16, when Jesus is commissioning his disciples, this is what he says to them, I send you out as sheep among pigeons, puppy dogs, no, wolves. Sheep among wolves. And when we see the brokenness in the world, we're tempted to assume that God is indifferent. He just doesn't care. He's apathetic. He's impotent. He can't do anything about it. We are reminded in this verse, we don't even know what's happening right now, let alone what's going to happen in the future. Not a clue. Not a clue. So fear God. Verse 8, look what verse 8 says. It says, no one has authority over the wind to restrain it. No one has authority over the day of death There is no furlough in battle, and wickedness will not allow those who practice it to escape. When we talk about fearing God, one of the reasons we fear God is we are powerless. And he gives us four examples in this verse of our powerlessness. Who can control the wind? You can harness it, but you can't control it. You can't restrain the wind. Um, Who can control death? Not a single one of you. Who Who can control battle? When you are conscripted, there was a practice among the Persians that if you were rich enough, you could pay a poor person to go to battle for you. He says, there's no furlough in the day of battle. When the men are called, you go, or you're a traitor. There's no way to get out of it. And he says, uh, consequences. There's no way to avoid consequences. Don't you wish, do you, have, do you have one thing that if you could go back and erase the consequences, something that happened in the past, you'd do it. Can't escape the consequences. He says, listen, what? Verse 8, at the very end, he says, Wickedness will not allow those who practice it to escape. You can think that wickedness is fun. It will catch you. You might appear to be faster right now, but your legs are not longer than wickedness. The consequences of what you do will catch you. In verses 10 and 11, he talks about a a very tragic thing when we talk about uh, the challenge of living in this world and the necessity to fear God. Verse 10, In such circumstances, I saw the wicked buried. Well, that sounds good. But listen to the rest of it. They came and went from the holy place, and they were praised in the city where they did so. This too is futile, because the sentence against a criminal act is not carried out quickly. The heart of people is filled with the desire to commit crime. Here it says that wickedness is not just a reality, it's celebrated in church. Here's a guy who came and went from the holy place, and he's praised. And he says that when justice is delayed, wickedness increases. If we don't carry out punishment, there will be other things that will happen. Uh, We will encourage wickedness. Verses 12 through 14. Although a sinner commits a crime a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I also know that it will go well with God-fearing people. For they are reverent before Him. However, it will not go well with the wicked, and they will not lengthen their days like a shadow, for they are not reverent before God. This gets down to the crux of the issue. Solomon says that it will or it will not go well for someone based upon their reverence for God, their fear for God. The wicked do what they want, 
with no reverence for God. The righteous do what they do because of reverence for God. And when we see wickedness happening, don't you wonder what you should do? What do I do? What do I do? What, am I, what, what, what action am I supposed to be involved in? And yet the Bible doesn't tell you to do anything. It tells you to trust someone. Don't do anything. Trust God. Be reverent before God because He is the ultimate judge and the wicked will not escape. This idea of reverence for God is a really fuzzy word. What does it mean to be reverent for God? It means to live the way He wants you to live. There are people who will disobey God and say, oh, I, I fear the Lord you know, because I, I believe in God. Well, listen, if your belief in God is just an abstract intellectual concept and it doesn't actually impact how you live, you don't believe in God. Sorry. If He has no authority to regulate how you live and your priorities in life, you do not know Him. So Solomon definitely believes there is some kind of reward or punishment in the afterlife. He's very hazy about that. So thankfully for us who live on the other side of the cross, Jesus fills in the blanks for us. John chapter 5, verses 28 through 29 is uh, Jesus says this. John 5, 28 through 29. Do not be amazed at this, because a time is coming when all who are in the graves will hear His voice and come out. Those who have done good things to the resurrection of life, but those who have done wicked things to the resurrection of judgment. Solomon, uh, Jesus says the exact same thing that Solomon does with one clarification. It's not what will or will not happen based upon reverence. Jesus says what will or will not happen will be based upon what you do when you hear His voice. Do you listen? Do you listen? You have to hear His voice. And that's not like... When you were a kid and you listened to your mom and you refused to come when she called you for dinner 15 times, that's not hearing. Hearing is obeying. And Christ is calling us to obedience this morning. God commands all people to repent, to turn from their sin, and to follow Christ. That means this morning, there are some of us that need to get started with that. Turn from sin, trust in Christ. For some of us, that means that some of us need to get re-enlisted. We, we got enrolled a long time ago, but we forgot what it means to obey. Both groups of people need to hear this warning and blessing very clearly. Foolishness comes at a terrible price, but the wise will inherit an abundant and eternal life. And it's because of that, because of that promise of eternal life, of abundance, of blessing, because of that promise that the wise survive in verse 15 by celebrating. The wise survive by celebrating, verse 15. So I commended enjoyment because there is nothing better for man under the sun than to eat, drink, and enjoy himself for this will accompany him in his labor during the days of his life that God gives him under the sun. Friends, we live in a wicked world. But the Bible says, don't sit out wickedness with a sour look on your face. Don't let wickedness make you sour. While the nations rage and scheme, you know what Christ's people do? We celebrate the God 
from whom all blessings flow, who sustains us, who allows us to get beat up, but we're not crushed. He allows us to be caught in difficult circumstances, but we're not destroyed. Solomon says, hey guys, listen, here's a question for you. Is life hard? Have you had a difficult circumstance? If so, say grace and eat up. Because there's nothing better than to simply enjoy the blessings that God has given. And don't belittle God's little graces. Remember, we're to pray for daily bread. And you know how you get daily bread? From your weekly work. Don't belittle God's little blessings. Be joyful. When we get into difficulty, we spend so much time focusing on things that we have no control over. Can you make the cancer go away? Can you make your employer hire you back? Can you make the person who said bad things about you change their heart? No. Then why are you freaking out about it? Why not focus on the things that you can control? Are you spending time with God? Oh, I think you've got some measure of control with that. Are you walking daily, moment by moment with Him? Are you praying regularly? And I mean, not just at mealtimes. Are you praying in communion with God? Are you consciously trying to do His will? Are you giving your first fruits? Are you trying to stay pure? Are you guarding your tongue? Are you trying to encourage your brothers and sisters in the Lord? Are you building your relationships? Don't allow what you can't control to steal your joy. Because the person who trusts in God has everlasting joy, even through life's most difficult circumstances, in spite of what we see, in spite of the circumstances around us, in spite of unanswered questions, Christ followers enjoy the life that God gives them. And we don't play the comparison game. Why are their circumstances different than mine? I don't know. I'm not going to puzzle too much. I'm going to enjoy what God has given me, and I'm going to let God manage the God stuff. That's why he concludes with his warning in verse 16 and 17. Solomon warns about the limits of wisdom. Look what it says. When I applied my mind to know wisdom and to observe the activity that is done on the earth, even though one's eyes never close in sleep day or night, I observed all the work of God and concluded that man is unable to discover the work that is done under the sun. Even though a man labors hard to explore it, he cannot find it. Even if the wise man claims to know it, he is unable to discover it. Solomon says there's some limits to wisdom. There are some things that not even the wisest among us will ever know, no matter how hard they work. He talks about the man who doesn't even sleep. He's trying to figure out how things work. They're not going to discover it. The story of Belteshazzar, uh, the writing on the wall, the king that's celebrating and drinking out of the goblets that were uh, set aside in the temple of God. He says, you know what? Those things that were dedicated to Yahweh, they're good for me. I'm going to use them for my party. And then the hand shows up on the wall and says, you've been found, you've been weighed in the balances and found wanting. God can take out wickedness like that. Iran, North Korea, you pick your, your, your terrorist. You pick your tyrannical ruler. God can remove them like that. He just doesn't do that normally. He doesn't do that normally. He controls all, 
but he doesn't promise to explain all. And we're not happy with that. It's not enough for God to be omniscient. He needs to give us the answers too. And some people fail to live with the mystery that the secret things belong to God and we're just supposed to celebrate and enjoy what he has given us. Wisdom endures even when it doesn't understand. I conclude with two scriptures. When we're faced with a scripture, like Isaiah 55, 8 and 9, says this, For my thoughts, this is God, are not your thoughts, and your ways are not my ways. That's a humbling statement. What do we do with that? Well, instead of crossing our arms and wrinkling up our face and sucking on lemons... Let me suggest that Paul gives us the answer in Romans chapter 11, verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable His judgments and completely, totally untraceable are His ways. Friends, if you want to survive like the wise, enjoy life and trust God.